Hello everyone and welcome to New Narrative's Political Agenda. This week on New Narrative, we've got an article from Editor-in-Chief Aisha Llewellyn on a cemetery in Medan designated for victims of COVID-19 and how the experience of going to the cemetery has changed over time to become something even more tragicomic. As she's previously written, even in death, the indignities caused by COVID-19 continue and claim even those who didn't die from COVID-19. We've also got an article about the centenary of the cinema in Myanmar and film censorship, and also a Chinese translation of the previously published article, Life, Death and the In-Between on the Death Penalty in Malaysia. Next week, on 9th September, we will be celebrating New Narrative's third anniversary with an open meeting, so do join us then. Details at newnarrative.com events. Do join us as a member at newnarrative.com join or donate at newnarrative.com donate if you like what we're doing. This week, part two of my interview with Sean Francis Han, the editor-in-chief of Wake Up Singapore. This is where we get into a survey that Wake Up Singapore did among their audience on political attitudes in Singapore. He highlights some very interesting findings and we talk about politics in Singapore in general. Okay, so let's talk about the survey. Tell yeah. us about this, this survey. When did you guys run it and uh, how did you guys, what was the you know, questions you asked? Okay, so we ran it quite recently um, and then it was titled the Attitude Survey. So it was just run on Google Forms, uh, disseminated to our followers on Facebook and Instagram. Um, and so we just asked them questions about, you know, how, what is the degree to which they support LGBT issues? Uh, what is the degree to which, uh, to which you, you support political freedoms, tackling inequality, things like that, right? And then we had a bunch of questions which just tried to make sense of our demographic. Are you, uh, what is your gender? Um, what is your religion? What is your age? Et cetera, et cetera. So using those two uh, sets of data, right, we were able to kind of glean certain insights about our followers, yeah. So I think that's the important qualification to put here, right? The survey is not a representation of Singapore as a whole, far from it, right? But it is a representation of, I think, left, more left-leaning uh, Singaporeans who are on social media, yeah. You know, that's the same thing we said for the citizenship agenda survey. Mm -hmm. And as you remember in our last TOC uh, discussion, mm -hmm. live stream discussion, um, the citizens agenda survey ended up being totally accurate about what the issues that the election would be focused on mm -hmm. would be, right? And they just nailed it. And I was very surprised. We didn't pretend that it was in any representative of all Singaporeans, and yet somehow um, our 800 respondents like absolutely nailed it. The top five that we identified were the top five of the election. So sometimes I wonder, um, you know, as academics, we have to be cautious, but um, people are aware of, of what's really important. Um, and just because it's a sub-segment doesn't mean it's wrong, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But anyway, that's a digression. Uh, mm -hmm. Just just one, two quick comments. It was in English, right? And yes, no definitely. other language? No other language. Yeah. And um, you didn't ask about class or did you have any proxy for class, educational level? No, no. Yeah. 
So we didn't look at that. We was looked at more um, age, religion, gender, uh, class, not so much, which is also a little bit difficult to do at such a young age range um, in the sense that they may not have a sort of good idea of where they stand mm -hmm. because they can't say, this is my salary. Right. Yeah. They'd have to kind of, I guess, maybe guess upper middle class, lower middle class, things like that. Yeah. So that one we did not um, address in the survey. And was that a conscious choice or you just didn't, um, you know, because when you put out this, when you design the survey, you don't mm -hmm. know who's going to answer it. So yeah. you, uh, when you designed the survey, mm -hmm. did you have someone in the room saying, well, we should, uh, you know, just ask these questions or did you have a discussion about, oh, it's not feasible to ask this question or, because for all you know, you could have had, like new narrative, we thought our readership skewed young and actually it skews a lot older. Mm -hmm. And um, we had a lot of, uh, the majority of respondents were over 30. Mm -hmm. So we actually were able, we asked people about their educational level. Mm -hmm. um, and in, in Singapore, you know, that also correlates strongly with class. So we mm -hmm. were able to um, think about that as a proxy. Mm -hmm. um, although, of course, we didn't, uh, you know, we, we don't have the expertise on, on hand to, to sort of um, analyze that. But mm -hmm. um, was this a decision that you guys made in the process of creating the survey? Or did you have a discussion? Yeah, in a way, it was a, a, a decision, whether conscious or subconscious. Um, we really just wanted to look at uh, a few variables and sort of figure those out. We didn't want to overwhelm uh, respondents with the number of questions. We didn't want to have too many variables, uh, which would be too difficult for us to then run through um, uh, our statistical methods. Yeah. So in okay. a way, it was a, a conscious decision. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what did you find then from this survey? All right. So there are four major findings that we have, right? Um, the first one is, is quite interesting. Um, so the first one is we asked respondents if uh, they prioritized the community or the individual. And then we went ahead and asked them if they believed it was more important to accept disagreement or to ensure consensus. Right. So two major questions. One is on community versus individual and the other one is disagreement versus consensus. Right. Now, what was very interesting is that a majority of our respondents said that they value, they, they would put community first, but that they also believed it was more important to accept disagreement. So that forms 38% of the respondents to this, uh, to this survey. Um, sorry, so 38 people said they put community first. 38% percent, percent of the, yeah, yeah, sorry, we 38 had 307 percent. in this This section. was on a scale of one to five? Uh, one to ten. One to ten. Yeah. So um, when you say thirty-eight percent of people uh, put or were were on the sort of six to ten of the scale of assuming one is individual and ten is community, yeah. they were on the community side of the scale. On the community side of the scale. And also on the disagreement side of the scale. Yes. Right. Okay. So this is quite. Uh, so that's quite interesting, right? Because it shows us this uh, a pretty promising ideological framework here, where. It is in no contradiction for one to accept the idea that community is important 
while simultaneously believing that we should accept disagreement. So there's a nice sort of um, embracing of plurality while also being aware of the importance of community here. So I think this shows us that, you know, Asian values is not like this straightforward one-dimensional thing, right? We could have Asian <laughs> values, which is community-centered and also accepting of disagreement. You know, Asian values is a load of nonsense, right? It was yeah. invented by Lee Kuan Yew and Mahathir. Yeah, in, but you know, even if we say, okay. In the wake of the Cold War to try and assert, a, uh, you know, uh, push back against the, the um, what they saw as the hegemony of liberal democracy and, and they're, they're, they're fearful of their own position and their party's position. So they invent this crazy ideology that somehow asserts a certain essentialism and I mean, it's, it's, it's a, a crock of, I mean, it's yeah. really a crock of nonsense, but I do also feel that to a certain extent, it's, it's like Trump, where the lie was just repeated so often that people started to believe in it, started to take life. Um, so it's interesting for me that whenever I have discussions with friends, parents or whatever, they, they can, they know what is being spoken about when Asian values are talked about. They, they, they do know what it is. Uh, and they seem to believe in it. So it's kind of like the line that got repeated so often that it kind of became a general cultural state. And I think what's interesting is that for young people born into this made-up cultural state, it can be something twisted that, that the good points of community and community-centeredness can be adopted while also assimilating new ideas about accepting difference, accepting disagreement. So that's very promising. Okay. Uh, but there is also a lot of neutrality, right? So another big segment, uh, also 38%, uh, put either neutral for the community and individual question or neutral for the disagreement and consensus question. So which links back to what we were talking about the last time, right? Which is that there's a general sense of apathy and a general sense of neutrality, right? Um, that we see. So on one hand, we do have youths who are more politically uh, engaged, right, who are more active in the political sphere, but we also do have a big chunk of youth who just are not really sure or are just neutral or even worse, apathetic. So that is being, I well, think... I mean, if they took the trouble to fill in the survey, I would say they're probably not apathetic, mm -hmm. but these are deeply contested issues in Singapore. Mm -hmm. And I can understand why someone would end up putting five because they, they're probably like, I, I'm not quite sure, you know. Mm -hmm. And what does it mean actually to put the community above the individual or the individual above the community? Mm -hmm. I'm not quite sure. I don't know. I don't, you know, another thing about Singapore is we're encouraged not to have opinions, right? Yeah. We're always told, oh, this is above your pay grade, above your intellectual level, leave it to the experts. Mm -hmm. Right, so I can see how people would, would look at that question and go, well, actually, I don't know, so I'll just put five. Mm -hmm. uh, out, of, out of caution or out of an awareness, a self-awareness that they don't have the answers, mm -hmm. which yeah. itself is, is an admirable trait, right? We've got yeah. too many people in this world who are like, yes, I know all the answers. Yeah. Um, so just, just, just a question, how many respondents do you have? For this section, we had 307. 307, okay. Yeah. So 38% is about 100 and uh, something? Yeah, 100 yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then the last, I think, interesting point, which is, I think, relatively unsurprising, is that uh, a relatively significant section of respondents 
um, put in that they valued the community first and then consensus was more important than accepting disagreement. So these, I think, um, uh, these, I think, fit into what one might traditionally understand as really more conservative ideals, right? Uh, and then what's interesting is that those who were in this category uh, were overwhelmingly Chinese and overwhelmingly male. So not the most surprising result. In other words, the people who have privilege. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. So that makes up 14%. Um, and, it, and, you know, when I first saw the results, I just thought, okay, you know what, 40% it's okay, right? But then I realized that, no, this is on a left-leaning page. These are followers of a left-leaning page. So if it's 14% on our page, it's going to be a lot higher um, in the rest of the country. <laughs> Mm, yeah, right. but it is it is also startling that the the sheer effect that being Chinese and being male has on one's uh, opinions, on on a statistical level. Yeah. So um, the biggest group you said was community and um, dissent, disagreement. disagreement. Yeah. Then almost as big as them were people who were neutral, neutral in both areas. Mm-hmm. And then sort of the third biggest group was this group we're talking about now. Community and then uh, ensure consensus. Yeah. Right. Okay. Huh. That's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, was, was there... What, what about the sort of obvious uh, corollary of the flip side of that? Mm-hmm. People who were uh, individual and disagreement. Um, yeah. yeah. Individual so those make up uh, 7%. Right. Mm, interesting. Uh, and then the last group, which is individual and consensus, was 3%, which is really, really small. I thought there were more like, I don't know, but I don't know what you would, I don't know how that, those two kind of fit together, but I thought that that would be a little bit higher. Yeah. Yeah, because you think um, you can understand why individual and consensus don't really go together. Yeah. But I, I was thinking it's more of like a. In a way, a proto-Singaporean mindset in that, you know, the individual kind of comes first in like this neoliberal market economy, but then you kind of want to have the consensus part where, you know, like individual freedom privileged insofar as you are operating within the market, right? Um, freedom to buy, freedom to sell. Um, the famous Lee Kuan Yew ping dollar, there should be the freedom for the ping dollar to flow, right? Uh, and But then also still in the public sphere, in the political sphere, consensus at all costs. So I thought that that was somewhat of a right, I see. Singaporean-ish, I see yes. but yeah, it came out 3%. So... Uh, <laughs> Probably. People don't usually think of it that way, I think. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not a very conscious thing to think about, oh, our economic lives are governed in this extremely individualistic way, mm-hmm. um, but our social lives are governed in this very communitarian way, and mm-hmm. these actually don't really fit comfortably well together in terms of a coherent ideology, um, you know, but they, they fit well together in terms of how in terms of the government and how it sees its role and how it uh, it controls the state and things like that. But uh, do, I don't, I would hazard a guess that most people don't actually think about it that way, which mm-hmm. is actually what you're asking about. Mm-hmm. Or would, what was the exact question? So there are two questions. Yeah. Do you put community or the individual first? And the second question is, 
do you think it's more important to accept disagreement or to ensure consensus? Right. Mm. So again, you're asking about personal individual ideology. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Okay, this is really interesting. Yeah. So the next question that we had, which was quite surprising, um, is uh, are teens or young adults more progressive? Yeah, yeah. So we asked a bunch of questions about um, do you believe in press freedom? Do you believe in political freedoms? Do you believe in tackling inequality? We sort of use that as a metric for how progressive a group was, right? So from the data, we were able to figure out, right, which group had more progressive ideals, right? But before we push those results out, right, we asked on Instagram sort of like a casual question, which is, who do you think is more progressive, teens or young adults, right? Um, and the response came back 56% teens, 44% young adults. So what that means is that, the, is that you're supposed to look at the question and say, do I think that teenagers are more progressive or do I think that young adults are more progressive? And generally people think that teens are more progressive, right? Now, the actual results when they came out actually showed that young adults were more progressive. And so the numbers got flipped. Um, 46% of teens to 54% of young adults, right? So young adults were slightly, I think quite, quite a bit more progressive than teenagers, yeah. So this was kind of uh, surprising. Oh right? really? Not a surprise to me. Oh, totally fits in with really? my understanding of Singapore, yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, so, so, so we actually talked about this and discussed this, the, the, the Wake Up Singapore team. We, we actually sat down and we were quite confused by this. And I think for us, it really represents the power of the institution, how strong the educational, um, uh, how strong the power of the educational institution is. Exactly. Yeah. And, and then you have military service or so that, that for, for uh, young men also comes quite early in their life. But then when you get into higher education or you get out into the world in general and you're sort of liberated from that giant state machinery, then your views start to maybe go a bit more left, go a bit more progressive. So I think, yeah, the power of the institution not to be underestimated here. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yes, that's uh, <laughs> been my experience as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and with New Narrative Citizens Agenda, we found the same thing, that in fact, the older you are, the more likely you are to blame the PAP itself as being the root of all the problems in Singapore. Mm-hmm. And our theory is that, uh, you know, the longer that you are exposed to the system and particularly once you hit retirement age and you try and claim your CPF uh, and once you've had a lifetime of dealing with the HDB and the housing issue and, uh, you know, with uh, older people as well, the issue of the 99-year lease, mm-hmm. the um, all these different issues of interaction with the state and healthcare, mm-hmm. right? And the challenges of paying for healthcare, right? Then you uh, you become more angry and disgruntled at the system. Um, and if you look at, at uh, the kind of things that younger people identified is- as issues versus older people, they were a lot more abstract. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, in some ways, you know... Um, in, uh, aligned with what you're trying to do, mm-hmm. issues of social justice, and the mm-hmm. older you got, the more concrete these issues became about specifically, I'm very angry at how the government does X and does Y in these policies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think um, your, I, I don't know if there's been a formal study, of course, this is, you know, we'd have to, someone would have to for, uh, you know formally survey school kids, but mm-hmm. my theory is the same as yours, that when you're in education, the incentive structure around you is so powerful for you to b- 
believe and conform with the state narrative and ideology, mm-hmm. right? I've had students come up to me and say, Dr. Tham, I love your work. I love your interpretation of history. Uh, you know, our teachers quietly give you your stuff, but they also uh, give us your stuff, but they also tell us, don't write this in exams because you'll fail, mm-hmm. right? You have to give the official answer and, uh, you know, otherwise you're going to get in trouble. Mm-hmm. So the, the, it's very clear, at least anecdotally, that, the, that students have to conform to a certain kind of thinking just to get through the system mm-hmm. uh, because that, those values are so underladen. And I, especially if you think about uh, if they're studying things like uh, you know, social studies, uh, history, economics, you know, those, um, the values inherent in many of the answers that they give are going to then be reflected in the kind of things that they say to you in these surveys. Whereas once you uh, are free of that system and you're actually, uh, you know, working and um, or having gone through NS and, um, you know, I think just free of the system, mm-hmm. you know, then you start forming your own opinions independent of it. And I think it changes you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I think that's that was also another big call for us to, you know, push a little bit more in that direction of re-education, reprogramming, right? Uh, because just so much propaganda to, to, to reprogram, there's so many things to kind of um, to unlearn. I mean, even for myself or my personal journey, right? There was a lot of weirdly toxic masculinity mm. that I, I got, you know, from, uh, you know, like when we were doing sex ed. Right, we just got so much of it. And it was compounded by the fact that I was in a boys' school, right? Mm-hmm. And then having to kind of unlearn all of that was very bizarre and a bit of a traumatic experience. You know, just like was I like that? You know, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, I think that re-education is 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 that big thing that I want to focus on. Yeah, especially now with in light of the the results. Yeah. And then while we're talking about masculinity, the, another uh, finding from the survey, which is also um, unsurprising, is that there are significant gender differences in Singapore, right? So on every single category, in every single question we asked about inequality, about LGBT issues, about f- political freedoms, right? Uh, women or females were more progressive than males in every single category, yeah, across the board. Again, do you think this just reflects privilege? Straight up, yeah. yeah. But I mean, the level to which, uh, the level to which that privilege affects one's worldview, I think that was a little bit startling for me. I thought it was not going to be as pronounced uh, as it was, but every single category really, to me, demonstrates that there is a bit of a rift here uh, between um, these two genders. Um, yeah, and even after controlling for race, um, males are still more conservative. Mm-hmm. So, so, so it seems really that this male privilege is quite prominent and quite powerful in Singapore. So yeah, end of the day, Singapore probably still, uh, definitely still more sexist than people think. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. It, mm. it's, it's, it was a big shock for me after my time abroad coming home and then realizing just how misogynistic our society is mm-hmm. um, that you know I was just really stunned that just I, I think it's improved somewhat in mm-hmm. the last 20 years yeah. but still it was uh, the 
the way women are treated in our society definitely leaves a lot to be desired. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, another interesting result also. Uh, males were much more conservative on LGBTQ issues. Hmm. So they were just generally more conservative, but then way more conservative on LGBTQ issues. Um, and of course, the reason there is also not too surprising, right? Mm. It's linked to issues of like personal identity, uh, homophobia, toxic masculinity. Mm. Um, and coming from a boy's school, I can completely, completely yeah. relate to this. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, the way that men kind of like freak out and get really, really like uptight about anything mildly related to LGBTQ issues is just, um, uh, it's just so profound, right? And the fact that it's so unaddressed as well. Yeah, so I think that uh, the level to which um, it has pervaded society and it's left unchecked is quite uh, uh, extreme, yeah. I think um, also the military, you know, our, our experience in national service, mm -hmm. um, the way that, I mean, as, you know, uh, every, every man, uh, every Singaporean male who's done national service out there will, will remember that the way masculinity is talked about mm -hmm. and uh, a certain idea of masculinity is very much promoted and others are demeaned mm -hmm. when you're doing national service. Mm -hmm. um, I remember being very uncomfortable with that. Mm -hmm. Uh, the whole incident about banning Purple Light, mm -hmm. uh, a song which, you know, um, celebrates rape and sexual assault. Mm -hmm. um, and then, I guess, uh, how we, if you look at the criminal justice system and how certain things are, uh, especially around um, male bodies and female bodies and how they're they're treated by not just the justice system itself, but the discourse around it, right? Mm -hmm. All of this feeds into this very problematic culture that we have. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm not surprised um, that anything outside this dominant um, idea of masculinity mm -hmm. is seen, especially in a, in, a, in a state where there's a very strong idea of what it means to be Singaporean, mm -hmm. and if you deviate from that, mm -hmm. you're not just, um, you know, ignored, you're attacked, you're demeaned, you're, you're greeted with hostility, as, and you're seen as a threat to the state itself. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, you know, that extends to, uh, on, on so many different levels, people like us who think differently, ideologically, you know, even though um, we conform in other ways. Mm -hmm. But if you then extend it to people who are uh, spiritually, physically, and very clearly different, right, then um, the extension of this ideology, this, this sort of very, um, you know, strict uh, identity, uh, it, it, these people are treated as enemies of the state in, 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 in certain ways, right? Mm -hmm. We may not think about it that way, but that's... The, the central message of a lot of this ideology that we have. Mm. Um, so I, I'm not surprised that, uh, you know, there is such, um, what's, the, what's the right word? That your survey shows that men are a lot more conservative on LGBTQ issues because the, the overwhelming messaging we're getting is deviance from 
this state-defined ide- ideology, identity, mm-hmm. is not just wrong, it's a threat to state and society itself. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not... I mean, a lot of the results weren't straight up surprising, per se. We do know the effects of Chinese privilege. We do know the effects of male privilege. But then just seeing it, you know, in, in numbers, in your face, is just a little bit shocking, you know, and then sort of seeing how powerful um, it was, right? So, for example, going back to the teens and young adults uh, survey, right? Uh, one of the things that we found was also that Chinese males were unaffected by age. So their views never got more progressive. Oh, so, really? Yeah. So uh, Chinese male but teens... But this is after, after young adults, because young adults were more progressive more than progressive. teens. Yeah. But then after that point... So, but then if you look at, if you single out Chinese males... Oh, they right. don't uh, get more progressive. Right. Their views kind of stay the same. How big a segment of your respondents were Chinese male? Um, in the case of this uh, survey, it would be somewhere around 100 for this section. Yeah. So out of, out of how many? Out of 213 total, then those who were Chinese male would be about 60, 70. Yeah. So that's um, just over a third? About there, yeah. About a third? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so that's lower than the population at large, right? Because mm-hmm. if 75% of the population are quote-unquote Chinese and half are male, that would mean that you're... Actually, that, that seems a, a, just a bit under, but about, about 40% of the population, 37% of the population would be Chinese and male. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you're also looking at about that same um, percentage there. So it, it, it is a, a generally a reflection population at large, I mm-hmm. guess. Yeah, so that's, I mean, the, the last bit in the survey was, was a little bit interesting for us, which is just we dealt with religion, right? right. So we found that people with no religion, as well as Christians, uh, were the most conservative groups in Singapore. Um, okay. The interesting part was that People with no religion, you would sort of expect them to be more progressive, right? Uh, but it was just really not the case. What Very were your options for religion? Did, could people fill in their own religion or did they pick? Uh, they had to pick. So we had Christian, Muslim, uh, Hindu, Buddhist, Taoist and no religion. Okay. okay. Yeah. Those are the dominant religions. Yeah. Uh, wait, did you did you have an other? Uh, we did have okay. another, okay. yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, so no religion... Uh, so, so individuals who put that they had no religion, right, showed low support for political freedoms and tackling inequality, but strangely had very high support for uh, LGBTQ issues. Hmm. So quite an interesting demographic there. Um, Christians, low support for all three, political freedoms, inequality, and LGBTQ issues. Um, and actually more homophobic than Muslims, uh, which was a little bit surprising. Then when it came to Muslims, they had very high support for political freedoms and tackling inequality, but very low support for LGBTQ issues. Right. Yeah. That that seems seems I about mean, right. That seems yeah. Yeah. And then Hindus followed. Uh, Hindus would be the most progressive group out of the lot. Right. So mm. uh, again, nothing too surprising. We know about the interaction between. Uh, race and religion in Singapore. We know the interaction between being a minority and then 
uh, progressive ideals. Mm-hmm. The one that was just interesting for me was the, was was individuals that said that they had no religion. Um, that's a bit yeah. So I want to sort of figure out why that's the case. And I've been speaking to some people, but I can't quite figure it out yet. Yeah, that is that is very interesting. Um, I suppose one question would be how people define themselves. You know, no religion. That is, uh, that could be a few things, agnostic, atheist, um, but yeah, if only we could interview some of these people, I think that would be really fascinating. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think another also interesting thing is just that, um, it seems to me that, um, yeah, religion itself really isn't all that effective of an individual's political leanings. It seems more like race is a bigger issue um, because the majority of, of, of Christians uh, here are Chinese so that seems to have a bigger impact than um, race seems to have a bigger impact than religion. That makes sense you yeah. know again in our political system race is overwhelmingly important and a marker of so many things mm-hmm. uh, a determinant of so many things right including your welfare this, your, that you get from the state mm-hmm. and how you're treated and in, in your experience of uh, you know education you know politics uh, whereas religion is deliberately de-emphasized mm-hmm. um, and, and um, you know suppressed even by the state which is uh, very very sensitive to religious issues so I can see how that would be reflected in your respondents yeah so I mean it's it's a it's a small survey that we've done produced some nice interesting results I think my big takeaway here is that um, identity is a big thing it has huge effects on politics you know for for people who are sort of centrist or right-leaning who say like oh, it's all identity politics now. It's this weird Americanized identity politics. No, I mean, the, the, what the data is showing me is that identity plays a big, big part in politics, right? And I think that the messaging or the ideas that we come up with are going to have to address uh, issues of identity. So, for example, if we're going to be speaking out about LGBTQ issues, the target now in my mind is no longer, you know, I'm no longer thinking of like, what's the best way to rebut common homophobic arguments. I'm going to be thinking about my audience. I'm going to be thinking about, they're going to be male, going to be, you know, probably maybe Christian, Muslim, Chinese, right? This is the guy that I'm talking to, probably a teenager, you know, um, this is the environment that this, this person is in, right? How can I craft a message that's going to speak directly to this person, right? So that's how... I mean, that's how I'm reading the thing. Yeah, that's how I'm reading this. Right? And also that, that, that um, I think it, just, it was a good reminder also that progressive ideals are not a monolith, right? They are not homogenous. So one can be uh, hugely supportive of political freedoms and, inequal- and tackling inequality while also being extremely homophobic. Or they could be extremely pro-LGBTQ issues and then um, you know, not care a damn about, the, about tackling inequality. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess this, there's there's a difference between people saying, "Okay, I'm against LGBTQ rights or something," mm-hmm. but then wanting to turn that into legislation and actively discriminate. Mm-hmm. 
because I know decent people who hold strong views, Catholics who, for example, don't believe in abortion mm-hmm. or gay marriage, mm-hmm. but also don't believe that their views should be turned into legislation. That mm-hmm. is their personal view. That's you know their business. Yeah. But that the government shouldn't be discriminating, and they won't support gay marriage. But they're not going to come out and campaign against it because they shouldn't be imposing their views on the people, mm-hmm. and that's fair enough. Um, and so I, I there's a, a sort of difference there. I think that a nuance that maybe this survey couldn't capture as yeah. to whether you what you believe mm-hmm. should then be translated into actual policy. Yeah. I mean, it, it is a it is a, a nuance, um, but it's I think for me it's not a nuance that I care all that much about. Um, I'm very skeptical of individuals who uh, say these are my private views, right? I th- I don't think that gay people or LGBT people are you know morally upstanding, or I, I think that there's something sinful about the whole life. But I don't think that. Uh, this should be legislated. I think that there should be a separation of church and state. I'm very skeptical of these of these individuals because I'm very aware of the damage that they can do. Maybe not in the legislative realm, but in the interpersonal mm-hmm. or cultural realm, right? Yeah. Um, and I've also seen that by hedging their views in such a way, they are able to then kind of like almost parade it as a virtue, while making LGBT people feel marginalized and uncomfortable. Mm, yeah. Mm, yes. So so I'm a little bit Yeah, uh, I see your point. Yeah. yeah. So to, to respond mm-hmm. to your other your other thing, right, mm-hmm. about uh, identity politics. Mm-hmm. Um it actually fits with a broader broader historical trends. Mm-hmm. Uh because we live in the age of nationalism and the nation state, mm-hmm. and this idea of nationalism has been extremely liberating for people um all around the world, especially colonized and oppressed peoples. This idea that uh, people of a certain nation should govern themselves, mm-hmm. right? And so in the course of the 20th century, we see all these waves of decolonization where big empires break up into small nation states. Mm-hmm. And what we've seen since then, though, is that um, governments seek to use the nation in various ways. Uh, that includes trying to justify post-colonial boundaries, which are very artificial, mm-hmm. right? Just look at Southeast Asia and the random boundaries that we have, which mm-hmm. don't really make sense. But then governments have to say, no, we are one nation mm-hmm. and distinguish themselves. You know, so uh, the PAP went from we are part of Malaya we are, to we are part of Malaysia to suddenly, no, we have nothing to do with those people. They are very different, mm-hmm. you know, all in the space of a couple of years. Um, but the the sort of logical conclusion to this sort of nation state um, nationalism as the basis for governing a nation, of course, is identity politics because mm-hmm. uh, you're emphasizing that people of a certain identity mm-hmm. uh, should govern themselves. Uh, and so that incentivizes people to then play up the uniqueness of their identity mm. um, and to use identity as a marker through which they uh, exclude or include certain people in the nation and therefore in the state, mm-hmm. right? So people like Trump, uh, for example, he's not a historical anomaly. He's the logical conclusion of uh, the weaponization of nationalism and the weaponization of identity over the course of the past 
century. Mm-hmm. And this is, I think, one of the big challenges that societies at large face where the, the same ideology, which was so liberating, has now become extremely divisive and in many ways toxic and how do we move past that Mm -hmm. so your survey also shows you know fits very much into Mm -hmm. these broader historical trends yeah um and and the you know also encapsulates the major challenges facing um all countries Mm -hmm. in the next 50 years yeah and i think it's also a good um it's a good sort of reminder or or maybe note to those of us who are on the left right those of us who are generally more progressive, right? Uh, that identity politics is a real thing. And one thing that I get uh, as well that I see in the direct messages sent to Wake Up Singapore or in some of the ideas floating around the Twitter sphere, the Instagram sphere, right, is that um, there are a group of activists, there is a portion of activists and um, uh, progressive individuals who, who, who don't like the whole identity politics thing. They're more, uh, they favor a more economic or more pragmatic view of politics so they say oh you know why why do you know it's it's important sure right uh to talk about issues of identity but what's more important is uh economic conditions what's more important uh is theft of labor and etc etc so i think this is a good reminder that we're not even going to be able to think about those things or talk about those things if the lens of identity uh, is so firmly stuck and yeah. prevents individuals from even thinking outside of that bubble that they have for themselves. So, yeah, so I think just a call for those like more materialist, more economically oriented. More rational, right? Yeah. We, we want to think the world is rational mm-hmm. and, and we've been fed this whole line about you know we are rational actors Mm -hmm. but the world clearly shows that we are also extremely emotional actors and we're willing to do things against our own rational interests on the basis of a certain belief or ideology including identity nationalism and you know other things race religion whatever Uh, but we are we are perfectly able to be completely irrational and adopt and act against our own rational self-interest mm-hmm. on that basis. So if you want to actually make a difference in society, you have to accept that we are flawed, emotional human beings as well. Um, and in order to solve problems, we have to appeal to people both on the rational and irrational, emotional level as well. Yeah, right. I mean, some people talk about how uh, there's a lot of infighting, a lot of disagreement between uh, people or different segments of the left. Um, I think that's 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 a that's a good reminder, right? That yes, economic conditions, yes, material conditions are extremely important. But really, the more I look at it, the more that I I spend time working with with Wake Up Singapore and looking at um, the effects that identity has on people's lenses. I think it's impossible to ignore just how profound the impact of privilege and identity is on the way that people construct their world and their worldview. Yeah. Cool. I think we're out of time. So I just want to thank you, Sean, for joining us here today, yeah, uh, sharing with us so much about Wake Up Singapore, about uh, your survey, your fascinating mm-hmm. survey. Yeah. And uh, you know, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Our thanks to Sean Francis Hunt.
please check out Southeast Asia Dispatches, our fortnightly podcast series bringing you news, interviews and commentary from around Southeast Asia if you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to experience our other podcasts. This is PJ Thumb wishing all our listeners a great week ahead.